Good morning. Uh, my name is Taylor Christmas, and today uh, we'll be reading from Matthew twelve thirty three through 45, and that is on 817 in the Pew Bible. I'll give you a second to get there. Again, it's Matthew twelve thirty three through 45. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. Let me add my good morning. If we haven't met, I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I'd love to pray for us as we get started. I'm really thankful that you're here. Uh, let me just pray. Jesus, thank you for speaking already to us by your spirit. It is really, really good news that you have no rival, that you have no equal. Nothing will stand against you. That gives you the authority and the power to come and rescue and help and save and nothing, no man, no institution, no sin, not even Satan himself can stop you. So we declare that this morning and then we just ask that you would apply that to our hearts. We bring sin, we bring loss, we bring sadness, we bring anger, we bring shame and regret and fear, we bring apathy and numbness, 
We bring a sense of hopelessness. We ask that you would apply the good news of your indomitable power to those places of our hearts. You know exactly where we're at. You know what we need. Uh, Would you fill the room now with your presence in such a way that it drives out other things we might be tempted to look for? Would you fill this room and fill our hearts in such a way that other things lose their allure? They just seem unappealing. They're exposed as the lies that they are so that we can look to you and you alone to satisfy. So would you come to my sisters and my brothers, the children in the room, and would you help use your word, use your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I, I don't know. If you're not familiar with the Bible at all, this passage just seems kind of bananas. Well, let's be honest. If you are familiar with the Bible, this passage seems kind of bananas. You've got Old Testament references to Jonah. That's the guy who was swallowed up by the fish and for three days and was vomited back on land. So there's some questions about that. And then you've got this Queen of the South lady who shows up. You've got this exorcism and then repossession things happening. So there's, there's a lot going on in this text. Here's the good news. I actually think the main idea is pretty simple. <laughs> You're like, yeah, right. But if you can remember like what he's trying to do in this chapter, I think the main idea will ground us a little bit so that we can make sense of what he's saying because it actually is pretty clear. Here's the news of this text. Here's what Jesus is driving after. It's what he's been talking about for the entire chapter of chapter 12. He is God. He is Lord. And he wants your heart. That's the whole point. He wants your heart in such a way that he wants to drive out other loves and affections. He wants to reveal what's inside your heart so that you'll turn to him. He doesn't just want to change your outward behavior. He actually wants what's inside of you. And he died and rose again to give the power to actually redeem and change your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. So you might say like our words reveal what's in our heart, but Jesus died to transform our heart, not just to give us better words. What, What comes out of us, what we do shows what's on the inside, but Christianity is not an outside in religion. It's an inside out religion. God wants to actually change and redeem what's inside of us so that from that place, our words and our actions begin to be transformed. That's what he's been talking about. He's in contrast to the Pharisees that have all these external laws and rules and regulations that they put on people. So he's going to battle against that kind of religion that says you have to do more and try harder. He actually wants to expose the bankruptcy of that. That's kind of what he's doing here in some of the challenge when they ask a question and he He calls them evil in that space. He sees right through the games they're playing with their words. But but the main idea of this text is that Jesus wants to come and so fill your heart that it drives out every other affection, every other temptation, every other love. It's a lifelong project that we're on, but the power that he has is actually real enough to transform and change you. So that's the point that he's making. And if we can hold on to that point, then we can walk through the text and just see how he says that and what he illustrates that with so that we can understand it. Jesus strings together a number of illustrations in this text to to simply make that point. And it's the point of the whole Bible. God, God has always been after your heart. And there's no laws or rules or regulations that could change or redeem. God had to do something to take our hearts of stone that are resistant to him and give us hearts of flesh. And actually we see in this 
imagery with Jonah, how he came to do that through his death, burial, and resurrection. So in that space, what we have is a beautiful declaration that God wants your heart. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's the good news of Christianity. Don't read this as something that's kind of freaky. Read it as something that's actually really easy to attain to go, what I say shows what's inside of me. Jesus cares about what's inside of me, and he wants to actually heal and transform it. He came not just to give you better behavior, but to heal and change and transform your heart, to free you, to forgive you, to actually make you fully human so you could connect to your creator. Because the way our hearts are designed because of sin is actually distant from God, enemies of God, hard of the things of God, like these Pharisees expose with their words and with their deeds. So, so we want to step into the text then and not just watch the dialogue, but ask what would it say to us? How will we apply that to our hearts? And so I want to walk through it and maybe we'll try to do three points. We want to say what our words reveal and then how Jesus wants to heal. And I messed with this a little bit. He wants to heal by filling feels, his heels and feels. I couldn't make it work, but I just want to try anyway. It didn't come out any better in my notes than it did out loud. So, so what our words reveal, how Jesus wants to fill and heal, and then how this actually happens. That'll be kind of the dialogue that we walk through or the steps that we, that we take. So, so look with me in verse 33, what our words reveal. Remember, he's been dialoguing with the Pharisees all the way back in chapter 12. What we have is Jesus declaring he's Lord over the Sabbath, which is a claim to be God. They know that. They hate that. They set out to conspire to destroy him, it says in verse 14. All he's done is heal a man, and then he comes into a space where he casts out a demon, and that drives them crazy. They say the only way you can do that is through demonic power. They accuse him actually of being satanic, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit we talked about last week. The only thing that can't be forgiven is to resist the Holy Spirit saying to us, Jesus is the one who can actually rescue you. Jesus is the one who could actually heal you. Jesus is the one who came to be the Messiah to make a way for you to be saved. That's what the Holy Spirit says to us. To call the Holy Spirit a liar about who Jesus is means you have no opportunity to be saved. That's what's been happening in this text. And they are furious at Jesus. And so he actually engages with them now and wants to talk about what they're producing versus what he's producing. Look in verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So to kind of ground this whole thing together, when we hit the next section, and he talks about this house, it's another illustration for someone's heart. So you have roots and fruit, you have treasure, and you have a house all representing a heart, asking, asking what's going on inside of us. And Jesus says, you can tell what's going on inside somebody by what comes out of them. So Christianity is an inside-out religion. We're actually revealing what we love and believe through what we say. And there's an obvious contrast here, right? Jesus is the good tree who actually has been healing and redeeming, rescuing, forgiving, giving mercy Versus the Pharisees who come with law and condemnation, who come accusing, who come saying things that are actually blasphemous. The call Jesus, the son of Beelzebub, is actually 
a blasphemous thing to say. So you have that contrast in what they're saying in this moment. But Jesus wants to take this a little bit deeper and just say, hey, you have permission to examine your heart to ask what's actually coming out of me. What are the words I say and the things that I do? Right? It's not just words that have the abundance of my heart being exposed. My actions, my longings, my reactions, all those things that happen on the outside of me, they come from inside of me. And it's not that a bad tree can't produce any fruit. It's that it produces a kind of fruit that's not nourishing or edible. Right? There are good and bad trees, he's saying, and they both produce fruit. It's why someone can say the right words, but it doesn't land on you in a healing sort of way. That They articulate what they're supposed to say in the moment, but because their heart doesn't match that, when you take a bite of that, it doesn't actually nourish you. It doesn't actually feel like it's true. Jesus is not saying that you can't repeat magic words. He's saying that if your heart's not there, then it doesn't matter what you say on the outside. That doesn't change your heart. It only actually exposes and reveals it. So, so the words we say actually show what's happening inside of us. And it is complicated, right? Because we've been trained to apologize. We've been trained to say nice things. We've been trained to lead with compliments before you criticize. And yet you've interacted with people who their words seem to be spot on, but you're encountering them in a very different way. Jesus is saying that's because what we say comes actually out of our hearts. It's the deepest part of us and from that space we actually produce something and he says it's an invitation to actually examine what's going on on the inside the bones of the heart the mouth speaks so if the words that I say don't reflect something that I want them to say I get an invitation to actually look inside and say what's going on inside of me because he says there are careless words that we speak that we're going to be held accountable for. Look in verse 36. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by their words, they will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, he's not using justification the way Paul will use it later in the scriptures to talk about being righteous with God. He's talking about your words will be evidence that they will show what's going on. You will be proven by what you say, because what you say reflects what comes out of your heart, even what he calls careless words. That word can be translated as indifferent or, or empty, hollow words, words that we say not thinking about what we're saying. But here's what Jesus is making the point for us. Even those words that you're not consciously thinking about and plotting, as they come out of your mouth, they still reveal what's inside your heart. If you had that moment where you said something and then immediately you wish you could like take it back and put it back into your mouth and never have spoken it out loud. And normally what you say is, oh, I didn't mean to say that. And that's kind of true. What's more true is you actually meant that inside your heart. You didn't mean for that to be revealed on the outside. It's not that we spoke accidentally and said something that we didn't actually mean. We actually meant it. We just didn't mean for the other person to really know it. These careless words that come out of our mouth actually reveal something really deep inside of our hearts. They, they actually are more honest than we are about what's going on inside our hearts. Now, normally when we say things like that that we wish we could take back, it's not all that we mean. There's more inside of our hearts. But when I act out of shame and try to defend myself, I actually mean to do that. I'm not fully conscious of that. I'm not actually plotting out how to do that, but reflexively, 
to protect myself, I will accuse somebody or defend myself or go into some sort of litigation like, wouldn't you say or haven't you also? And I'll do those things to deflect because of shame. It's a real thing inside of me. It's not a pretend thing. It's not an accident. Well, the accident is I wasn't aware that that was driving me and those words actually came out of my mouth. Jesus is inviting us when we say things that we wish we hadn't said. To stop and not say, oh, that was a mistake or, or that didn't actually mean that. To stop and say, I did mean that. Where is that coming from? Because these careless, indifferent, empty words we're still held accountable for. Which means they still, have, they still have meaning. Which means they're an invitation into an authentic relationship both with God and others to examine and explore what's actually happening on the inside of me. So, so you think about like an apple. And let's just say this is like a relationship. And if somebody were to bite it, and they're like, oh man, this thing is like pilly, it's rotten, it does not taste very good at all. If I were to say, oh, it's fine, it's totally fine. Those are the right words to say. And the person's going, no, man, they're, like they're grainy and they're pilly, and I would love to spit it out. If I wasn't on stage, I would just spit this out of my mouth. It's, it's not good fruit. In the same way, when we use the right words, and they land on somebody and they say, ow, it doesn't feel very good. It doesn't feel like you see me. It doesn't feel like you love me. It doesn't feel like you know me at all. And you're quoting the Bible to them. You're actually speaking truth. Some of the most damaging things I've said to people had truth wrapped in them. They were rooted in a kind of truth, but then I spoke other things as well. And it would be wrong for me to say, all I was doing was being honest. All I was doing was speaking the truth. Because the way I spoke it out of my heart revealed something more was inside of me. When we're in relationships and the person reflects back to us, ah, man, I kind of hear your words, but what's happening inside of me isn't redemptive. It doesn't draw me close to you. I actually feel really far from you when you say those things. It's evidence that our heart is speaking more honestly then we're aware our words are revealing. Because bad trees produce bad fruit. It doesn't matter if it looks like good fruit. The person tastes it and goes, oh gosh, this is rancid. There's something about what's happening inside of us that is actually being exposed and revealed. The Pharisees often say like the right thing. They're actually about to ask a question like, well, give us a sign so that we can believe. That's like the right thing to say. And yet Jesus sees right through it to call them snakes and to call them adulterous and to call them evil the right words that come out of a a sick heart actually reveal more than we think they do when we think about our community i would love 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 for us to be the kind of place where it was safe enough for you to be wrong where you could say stuff and it just be straight up wrong and it was safe enough for someone to stay with you in that space and give you enough grace to actually explore what's going on behind what you said That's going to take a couple things to be at play. One is a strong enough view of Jesus that we're not resting our identity in our reputations. So when my reputation is smashed because of careless, idle words that I say that are revealing what's inside my heart, I don't go into a defensive posture. I don't go into protecting myself. I don't go into blaming somebody else. I actually stop and say, oh man, that actually is inside of me. And I need Jesus to heal and redeem and help with that. There's a kind of humility that's required 
that actually is only produced by having a secure identity in Christ that will allow us when things are exposed from our hearts to not defend them and freak out and push away from somebody and weaponize those things, but humbly actually receive and ask for God to grow us in that space. There's an invitation in this, right? When something is revealed and I'm already secure and forgiven by God's grace, then I don't have to hide it and explain it away. I can just receive grace for when that happens. We actually expect in this community to struggle and sin and to not be perfect. We actually expect to need Jesus in our community. Which is why in our small groups we're trying to train ourselves not to ask, did you struggle this week, but where did you struggle this week? So that when I'm in a conversation with somebody and they go, Chris, man, I, I, I think I want to trust your heart, but what you're saying is actually really painful. I don't have to go into lawyer mode or, or shameful groveling mode or excuse-making mode. I can simply stand there and receive and go, man, I, I'm not sure what you're tasting, what this fruit is that I'm putting in front of you, but we can stop in this place and you can actually help me examine this. And you have to be the kind of person that lets somebody believe that the risk is worth it for them to say that to you, by the way. It's a really vulnerable thing for somebody to challenge you when you are spewing fruit that actually hurts them. You have to be the kind of person that humbly anticipates the idea that you need to be changed for someone to actually risk saying to you, hey, that, that really hurt me. And I, I think you love me, but that, that, was really, that was really painful. Okay, on the speaker side, humility. On the receiver side, someone saying things to you. And they are, I mean, they're revealing their heart to you. It's the abundance of the heart that their mouth speaks, and it's maybe a careless word. They're not fully thinking about the implications of what they're saying. They might even be blind to the loves and affections and beliefs that are rooted in their hearts that are giving rise to that fruit. For the receiver to be a gracious person that believes that Christ even died, not just for those words, but for where those words are coming from, and giving space to sit in that spot and let somebody actually keep going. Because here's what normally happens. I throw out a bad fruit. You get offended, hurt. It catalyzes stuff inside of you. Now you throw out bad fruit at me, and we just stay at that spot at this bad fruit exchange. My offense triggers something in you. Your offense triggers something in me, and we stay up here. Oh, to be the kind of community that believe the relationship with Jesus that we have and the identity he gives us and the truth he tells us about our constant need for him. For that to be so strong, we could be offended and stay with the person and go, man, that really hurts. I mean, that like really, really, really hurts. Can you tell me where that's coming from? Can you tell me what's behind that? Can you tell me what else you believe and feel? Can you tell me where that's actually at root in your heart? And not prove it to me, but say, hey, I believe it's coming out of somewhere inside your heart that Jesus really cares about. That God actually wants to heal and to redeem and wants to actually apply his grace to that place. Because remember, Jesus came to change your heart, not just blame you and shame you and judge you for where your heart was at. He died on a cross to make it possible for your heart to move from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and to stay with a person and make it safe enough for them to not just do the careless defense mechanism words they're so used to using out of anxiety and shame and pride and blame, but to stop and go, gosh, you know what? I was really, I was really scared is why I said that. 
I was really nervous is why I said that. I was really sad is why I said that. And I'm not now making excuses. I'm exploring what's going on, right? Because there's roots that are underground that I often don't see that give rise to these roots. So when we experience pilly, bruised, kind of rottenly things with each other, pray God gives us the grace to stay with each other, to give them enough space to actually explore what's going on inside. Because when we exchange another shot across the bow trying to win or stop the conversation, we lose an opportunity to go, what is the abundance of the heart this is coming from? What are the beliefs that are below that? What are the longings that are below that? What are the fears below that? And what you'll probably find down there somewhere is this wounded and, and even like rehearsed, protected kind of place in someone's heart. Like, I make a ton of mistakes. I rarely mean to hurt somebody, but there are times I'm so scared or I'm so overwhelmed with shame, I do want to defend myself and push somebody away. So there are times where I'll use logic. That's my go-to. I'll use reason as a way to protect and shield myself. But if someone can stay with me and go, hey, man, you don't have to prove anything. Can you just keep talking about what you're actually feeling? If we can get to that place, we can actually gain some ground towards experiencing the grace of Jesus with each other. Now, I realize what I'm offering and asking you into is something that's a little bit scary. We'll need Jesus's help for this because for you to drop your guard to go to someone else's heart actually exposes you to more pain and actually needs a community around it to keep us safe. And not just any kind of community, but a community that was so rooted in what Christ has done for us that we're not tempted by these other defense mechanisms, which is a kind of a way to tie in what he's saying with this whole exorcism and repossession thing. Jesus is not giving us a pamphlet on exorcism here. He's giving us an illustration. He's saying it's not just enough to stop doing bad things. If you cast out a demon, these bad things, if you cast that out, but don't replace it with something, you just leave this void, more is going to return and it will be worse than before. So like just to be honest about your anxiety or honest about your shame or honest about your sadness or honest about your anger, that's not enough. It has to be refilled with something. And what Jesus offers us is him very self to come and sit in that space inside of our hearts and souls to, to fill us from the inside so that what now begins to overflow is an identity that's rested in Jesus, not one that is so committed to its own preservation that it will say and hurt and do whatever it needs to to protect itself. Jesus is actually offering us to a new identity that would replace some of the wounds and the fears and the lies and the habits and the patterns that have been so ingrained, they're like roots inside my heart. And they they produce lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fruit. And Jesus is saying, hey, what I came to do is to fill you, to heal and fill you in such a way that your heart begins to be transformed and changed. I, I long for us as a community to believe the gospel is strong enough that ourselves and our brother and sisters can actually be forgiven, they can be changed, and they can be healed. Jesus is saying, and don't minimize it, like it's showing you what's happening inside your heart. It's the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. These, These careless, idle, indifferent words, they actually have some value and meaning because you actually mean them even if the way they're coming out of your mouth isn't as strategized and thoughtful as you normally are. So stop, and rather than defend that, explore and go, man, where's that coming from? This is really hard as a parent when, when you're doing something with your children, and you say things that hurt them, and you're like 
mostly right, but the way you're saying it is really painful, and they challenge you with that. But you get the opportunity to model the need for grace in that space to actually apologize for like how it was said. And when we litigate on what was said, I'm just being honest. I'm just talking about the Bible. I'm just speaking truth. And that person is being pushed away and pushed away and pushed away and pushed away. We realize that what's happening inside of our heart actually is producing really bad fruit. It might look great, but it's pilly. And it may be funky. It might be gross. It might be rotting. It might have been there for like a really, really, really long time. But it's expiring and it's wasting. And it's hurtful to those around you. So, so for non-Christians, here's the great news. Jesus didn't come just to clean up your act and give you nice words so you talk like church people. In fact, church people talk weird and say weird things. Don't, don't talk like church people. That's not the goal. He came to actually heal what's inside of you so that from the inside out you could be transformed. Christians, rarely are we so simple that there's only one thing at play inside of our hearts. Don't, don't think necessarily about sanctification and this kind of growing in Christ-likeness as just one tree. Think rather like your heart is this orchard. There's like a ton of things going on inside your heart. Some are being redeemed and healed. Some are being groomed by the Spirit of God and are growing beautiful things. And there are some old trees in your orchard. There's some things you practiced and rehearsed for like a really long time that have fruit on them that Jesus wants to heal and change. It doesn't mean every time you say something that you shouldn't say that you're not a Christian or God doesn't love you. It means there's an opportunity there for you to experience a place where you could have more healing and redemption. You could do some root work to things you believed were true about you and other people in the world and maybe even about God that were wrong that led you to shame and pride and anger and anxiety and racism and materialism and to use people sexually and to think about you having to always defend yourself or, or earn something. Those trees have really, really, really deep roots. But Jesus came to actually change us from the inside out. So Christians, think about your life more like an orchard than a single tree. So when you expose places in your life that still need to be redeemed, don't be shocked. You don't have to defend it. You don't have to explain it away. You can just go, man, there it was. Start with repentance. And then stay with somebody long enough to explore what actually is below that. Because you'll find something way more vulnerable, but way more real than what's going on just on the outside. Remember, it's the abundance of the heart. There's a lot inside your heart that's coming out of you. And Jesus knows that, so he challenges these Pharisees with what they're saying and pushes them to their hearts. Not the technicality of their words, but where they're actually coming from. And then they expose themselves in the next section. And we'll, we'll kind of do the third point here. What's happening in this space, I think, is a beautiful, like, layered meaning for us of both how that change and transformation happens, as well as like a challenge to these Pharisees. So look at me in verse 38. He says, and some of the scribes and Pharisees, they answered him, right? These are words. He said, the words show what's inside your heart. Their immediate response to hearing this invitation to explore the abundance of their heart is to use words as a way to weaponize and defend themselves and accuse Jesus. And they're well-sounding words. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That's like the thing you're supposed to say. But Jesus sees right through that, and he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. They're seeking some kind of a sign, because remember, he's only been doing signs to this point. 
He's healed and taught and done miracles. He's done an exorcism. He's healed a man on the Sabbath, which is infuriating to them. He's proven that he is God with what he says and what he does. And they say, prove to us more. Which remember in Matthew 4, when Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him, he says, hey, prove your God by turning these stones into bread. Prove your God by throwing yourself off this temple. Would you prove that there's actually value and worth to what you say? It's not a humble invitation or request to actually see God for who he is. It's a challenge and an accusation wrapped in a question. But it's how the bones of the heart of the mouth speaks. Even if it's the right words that come from a wicked heart, they expose something inside. And so Jesus responds to them and says, hey, the only sign that's going to be given to you is a sign of the prophet Jonah. This is where you go like, Jesus, I wish you were more clear, but I think he's actually being abundantly clear. I think it's a layered, but I think he's really, really clear. So Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. Maybe you remember the story as a kid from VBS. He was supposed to go to a pagan country that actually was an enemy of his own country to preach the good news of God's grace. And he didn't want to do it because he knew God was gracious and he would forgive these suckers who kept attacking his people and he didn't want them to be forgiven. He wanted to hold on to the vengeance and justice and an injustice and the wrath of God. He wanted to withhold a chance for them to be forgiven. He did not want to go and tell them the good news. So he goes the opposite direction. Tons of things happen. He winds up in the belly of a fish who swims him back to the shore where he's supposed to be. The fish vomits him up on land. He goes begrudging to these people in Nineveh, tells them about God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you can just imagine these are not like amazing words, but they come from the heart of God. So they have power in this space. The people of Nineveh hear these words. They repent. They're changed. And it ticks Jonah off. That's the story of Jonah. So he says, hey, no, no, no sign is going to be given to you except the one, the prophet Jonah, which has in this space a couple layers. One of them is this, that the Pharisees are going to see pagan nations, pagan people, outsiders, accepting God being healed and transformed. And they're going to hate it. But that's the way God actually works and what he does. It's an invitation to all people. So part of the sign of Jonah is is these Ninevites actually responding and this queen of the south actually responding to the invitation from God that will stand as judgment over them. These ones who were on the inside and knew about God's love, who should be the first ones to share that love, they often withhold it in ways that actually harm people. So part of the sign of Jonah is that those on the outside are coming inside faster. And it's meant to provoke or challenge or expose the hard hearts of God's people. That's what the prophet Jonah is actually about. So that's one of the signs. But I think there's three more things that are going on in this. And they're marked off by this word for. Let me just walk through these real fast. I think the sign of Jonah, Jesus says, actually does something to them. Here's what it says in verse 40. You won't get a sign except the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, the sign you're going to get is my death, burial, and resurrection. You're going to see that I have the power to actually change and transform hearts. You're going to see that I'm actually God because you're going to crucify me. You're going to put me in the ground. And the same way Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I'm going to come out of the ground ruling and reigning. That resurrection power will be evidence to you that I actually am God. That's the sign you need. That's the sign that I'm going to give you. So one is the resurrection. Then in verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching 
of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The repentance of these people will come as a sign when those who are far from God are brought near to God by repenting and asking for God to heal and cleanse them. And he does that. That will be a sign, the love of God, the power of his resurrection, and the mission of Jesus as the Messiah. When people repent, it's a sign of Christ's power. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up a judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Another Old Testament passage, it's from 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon is this wise king, and his fame is spreading across the globe. And this woman, scholars would say, traveled like 1,200 miles to come and hear the wisdom that he has, which is in contrast to Jesus being right in front of them and him telling them who God is and what he's like and what God came to do and them rejecting. The the warmth and the welcome and the desire to hear the wisdom that this queen of the south offers will come as a sign against the Pharisees of their hard-heartedness and will be a contrast for them. Okay, so you have these three things. The resurrection, repentance, and receiving what God is saying or desiring to learn what God is saying. There's a reception to the ways of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Those three things become a sign as well. And what's amazing to me is those three things are how we actually are transformed. By trusting in Jesus and the power of his resurrection, that's what actually heals, that's what actually transforms the roots of your heart. And as you engage with him, it's not just in your head, it looks like something on the outside, it actually reproduces or produces repentance. Like fruit of repentance is born in our hearts as we trust Jesus. And then there is a desire to no longer go that direction, but to turn and have a receptivity to the ways of God, to learn the ways of God the way the Queen of the South came to learn the ways of God from King Solomon. So the resurrection power, a gospel identity, to trust Jesus for everything changes you. It doesn't stop there. It actually is an invitation to repentance, to turn away from those other things that you used to love, the other ways you used to build your identity, to turn in repentance and then to turn to walking by the Spirit, turn to the ways God is leading and is training you. A gospel identity, repentance, and then walking by the Spirit. And if you've been with us for a while, that should sound familiar. It's the biblical pattern of how transformation actually takes place. It's what we see over and over again throughout the Bible, but we focus on it in Colossians chapter 3 where we're getting our marching orders as a church, where you have a gospel identity and then an invitation to take off the things of the flesh and then put on the things of the Spirit. That's how this transformation actually takes place. So in this layered sign that Jesus gives, he both rebukes the Pharisees and exposes their hard-heartedness, and he gives us plot points of how we should engage with God to have our hearts revealed, to trust his resurrection, to repent of the other ways that we've longed and lived for, and then to turn and be receptive to walking by the Spirit is how our hearts are actually healed and transform. And you need all three of those, right? Because simply saying sorry and stopping something isn't enough. That's what's going on in that last little section, right? This unclean spirit. Again, not necessarily an explanation about exorcism and repossession. It's an illustration that's not enough just to say I'm sorry and stop something. You have to fill up your heart with something else. It's the expulsive power of a new affection, some of the early church people called it. To let God push out the other loves by by filling your heart 
with his goodness and his mercy and his grace. It's what Ephesians 3 talks about, of having a strengthened inner woman and inner man so we can take in how big God's love is for us and that fills us with all the fullness of God. To, to be filled is actually what transforms us so that what comes out of our hearts is an overflow of that. And when we're filled with Christ and his love and his identity, there's not room for these competing identities. I was with a guy yesterday and we were talking and, and I said, hey, I'm not going to preach at you tomorrow. I want you to hear this sermon, but it's not about you, I promise. But, but as we talked, it was this pattern of trusting God for our identity and stepping away from other things that we've looked to for identity and asking God to lead us going forward. And we talked about this passage about filling and he said, yeah, it's like your yard. Like the best way to make sure weeds don't grow is to have really rich, lush grass. Having a full lawn is the best way to keep weeds from growing because when there's tons of dirt in a spotty yard, there's opportunity for these little seeds of weeds to take root. I think that's what Jesus said. It's really profound. Jesus saying, hey, would you fill your heart with the love of God so the competing loves of other things don't have an opportunity to actually take root and grow? Jesus says what the Bible always says, that God cares about your heart, and he came to actually redeem it and rescue it. It's through his resurrection power that he offers you an opportunity to repent, and then he leads you in a new way. He wants to fill you with his love in ways that actually change and transform you. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in this text. And it's a way for us to actually ask him to move in our hearts and to work even this morning. Are you trusting his resurrection power? Is that where you're getting your identity from? Or have you let your heart go to other identities and values and looking for worth and love in those other places? Are you willing to repent? Don't harden your heart, but repent. Be like the Ninevites who, who hear this word and actually respond to it and turn away from those competing gods or loves, those other things that they were building their life on. And then this receptivity to want to hear what God might say to you. This woman comes and asks, how, how do I hear? How do I learn? How do I go forward? Right? Not just to believe I've got it on my own, but actually in a humble posture, ask to be changed and transformed. A gospel identity, repentance, and a desire to walk by the Spirit is how God actually heals our hearts, changes and transforms it. And we just stop by saying he's the one who did all the work to make that possible. It's his resurrection power. That's the primary sign of Jonah to actually engage our, our sick, dead hearts and make them alive, which is why we take communion every week. To remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood, so that we could actually be forgiven and set free. And this morning, as you take communion, Christians, would you have in your mind the idea of being filled with that identity, the broken body and shed blood of Christ, being something that fills your heart and drives out competing loves. Would you have that in your heart and mind as you come and take communion? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to stay in your seat. God loves you. He cares about you. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your religious rituals. He doesn't want you to come and just do religious things on the outside. He wants what's happening on the inside of you to be healed and changed. There's some prayers on the back of your bulletin that will give you some language to talk to God and ask him to speak to you. You can engage with those words, and, and you can just sit in your seat and you can pray. And if you feel ready to actually trust his resurrection and you feel ready to repent and you feel ready to, to ask him to lead you by his spirit, you're ready to trust Jesus for your righteousness, then man, come forward, take communion. Let's talk about it after the service. But if you're not there yet, just stay in your seat and, and pray. We're going to do communion just a little bit differently. Uh, this morning you thought you finally had it and now we're changing it up again. We're going to try tearing a piece of the bread off and dipping it in the cup. We've been cutting it up for COVID reasons and I know we're watching the numbers, but we're going to give it a shot today and we can talk about how it goes. Here's the deal. 
we have two loaves to last, and we normally kind of split three loaves, so we're going to see how this goes. I would think uh, just a little bit of Jesus grows a lot in your heart uh, if you had that in your mind. Um, so you'll come, and you'll tear a piece of the bread off, and you'll dip it in the cup. There's a gluten-free station over here to my right, your left, as well as some single-serving communions if that's more comfortable for you. Let me pray for us, and we'll ask for God to fill us in ways that transform and change us from the inside out. Jesus, thank you for your resurrection, for your burial, for your death. We celebrate in this moment your broken body and your shed blood on our behalf to make a way for us to have these roots and these um, diseased trees of our heart dealt with and uprooted. Thanks for renewing us from the inside out, for caring about our hearts, not just our behavior. And would you change us even as you meet us this morning? Would your broken body and your shed blood fill us in such a way that it pushes out every other love? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.